Welcome to Thinking Philosophy. I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. It's commonplace to believe that every adult has a right to make their own decisions. But what happens when a person has dementia? What if they refuse to take medication that they need, or insist on living alone when they cannot do so safely? Is it wrong to force mum to move to aged care against her will? Can the care worker ease her distress by telling her that her husband is coming later, even though he's been dead for five years? These everyday dilemmas derive from major questions about personal identity, which are at the heart of a field called moral psychology. To help us unpack them, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Matthews, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Australian Catholic University and Senior Research Fellow at the Plunkett Centre for Ethics at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me, Deborah. Philosophically speaking, how does having dementia change a person? Okay, there's there's two concepts here that we need to unpack. The concept of a person, on the one hand, and the concept of dementia. So what I might begin by doing is just talking about the idea of dementia, and then we'll consider the idea of a person and see how those concepts interact. So dementia, of course, is not a specific disease. It's an umbrella term or a syndrome term for a set of symptoms and um, including uh, memory loss, for example, um, difficulties with language, especially early on in in dementia, uh, things such as planning and the execution of plans, even things like uh, perception of clock faces, for example. Uh, There's other ones. Disorientation is another symptom of, of dementia. Now, that's the, de- the word dementia describes that set of symptoms. And then the question is, what's the underlying, underlying cause of those symptoms? And then we go to the, the disease, the diseases, um, the pathologies that are generating the brain damage that results in those cognitive losses. Now, there are umpteen kinds of diseases that are associated with dementia, but there are four main ones. The, the main one that you will have heard of, and most of your listeners will have heard of, is uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, there's vascular dementia, which is a matter of uh, having a stroke or a series of strokes. There's something called Lewy body disease. And there's fourth one, the fourth main one is frontotemporal dementia. Now, um, the, the important thing is to distinguish between that, that set of symptoms and the disease pathology, because there are different profiles with the diseases in the way the symptoms unpack. So I'll talk about Alzheimer's mainly today. And um, the, the other important thing is that there are stages in dementia. So we talk about mild, moderate, and severe forms of dementia because it's a pro- progressive illness that can run for many, many years. Now, um, those mental impairments, of course, have effects on the person, which is, goes to your question. And so we need to understand what is a person. And we distinguish in moral psychology between a range of factors in personhood. That includes the nature of the self itself, uh, questions of agency, 
and questions of autonomy. So I think it'd be quite useful if I just quickly run through those so that you get a picture of what's at stake in the concept of a person and the way dementia affects those various factors. So for example, let's begin with agency. I think that's an important one. We tend to think of agency in moral psychology as free agency or human free agency. And the important thing is the distinction there between acting as an agent as opposed to um, the events in nature which seem to be determined. So an agent is the author of their own actions. That's the key thing. We also distinguish between synchronic agency and, and diachronic agency. That means acting in a moment synchronically or acting over a period of time diachronically. So think of just making a sipping a cup of coffee. That's an action that occurs within a period of seconds. That's synchronic agency. The important thing with dementia is to understand the effects on diachronic agency. So imagine you have the desire for a cup of coffee, but there's no coffee in, in, the, in the kitchen. Now what's required is planning. I need to go to the shops, buy the coffee, maybe the milk, come back, boil the water, make the coffee, end stage, final goal, drink the cup of coffee. Now that apparently very simple set of acts would be challenging for a person at the moderate stage of dementia, certainly for the late stage of a dementia where it's probably, probably important. So you can see straight away that dementia and agency uh, interact conceptually there in that in that way insofar as the, the, the dementia, the impairments, mean that a person will struggle with their diachronic agency. Now, autonomy is another important uh, concept in personhood. We think that ordinary people, adult people, other things being equal, are autonomous. And that just means that they're the authors of their own lives or that they govern their own lives. The word autonomy is um, has Greek roots autos nomos, to be a, a ruler of oneself, a self-governing being, uh, or to give oneself one's own rules or laws. So when, when, a, when a child grows up and becomes an adult, they get to the stage where they can reflect on their own lives and make decisions which govern their agency over time. And we think that's a good thing. We think that's at least a minimal level of autonomy which ought to be respected. The key thing about autonomy, in contrast with agency, is a mo this following, the following moral dimension. A person who's autonomous may make bad decisions, but we allow them to, do, when I say bad decisions, say imprudent decisions, but we allow them to do that because we value autonomy. We allow them to, to have that freedom to run their own lives. So you can see now with with the case of dementia, there are troubling questions because it may be that a person with dementia is making an imprudent choice, but they're still an autonomous person, particularly in the early stages of mild dementia. So we should be careful not to um, uh, be too paternalistic with respect to what they can do. Uh, now, there's grey areas here because as one becomes less autonomous, as one's agency becomes more compromised in the later stages of dementia, it may be that a person is starting to um, make decisions that could be harmful to themselves and to others. And at that point, we re reach those difficult questions where we have to decide whether that autonomy is going to be compromised. Notice that autonomy is not like a, an on-off switch. It, it comes in degrees.
So we can talk about uh, dementia and the self a bit later on, but I think maybe if we um, we, we go on. One solution um, to dealing with this question of people with dementia making imprudent decisions is to, to take over, to accept they no longer have autonomy and, and have this paternalistic attitude to looking after them. Um, but you've indicated that that's problematic partly because we don't know what degree of autonomy they've still got. It's problematic for other reasons too, isn't it? Exactly. Um, now, take a person who has a diagnosis of, of dementia, who's initially living at home with a love, with, say, a spouse, for example, who's looking after them, but after a while it gets too much and we put them into um, residential aged care. Um, now, they're at that moderate stage where their autonomy is under threat. Nevertheless, even at that stage, we have a person struggling with brain damage. That's essentially what we've got. They're still the same person. They still have the same personality. They may just have some language difficulties and some difficulties with memory. But they are now in a foreign setting with other people uh, with similar conditions they may be locked in into a ward. Their freedoms have been encroached upon. Life's difficult. Now, um, using this idea from person-centred care, let's take the perspective of that person. Suppose, uh, I'll give you an example. There's this phenomenon called wandering, which is associated with people with dementia. Now, there's a real question as to whether that's a symptom of dementia, particularly in, I mean, not all cases, maybe in some cases it is, or whether... The phenomenon of wandering is simply a perfectly sensible reaction to being in a foreign environment where I might have been a sports person formerly, where I'm very active, and suddenly I've got nothing to do. I'm bored. I want to move around. So it looks to the person, to the carers, that this person has wandering. On the other hand, this is just a perfectly sensible reaction. Should we be paternalistic within this, in this kind of situation? Should we perhaps recognise that this person struggling with their condition is simply responding autonomously to that, to that situation. I think in many cases it's very important to distinguish the symptoms of, of dementia as opposed to understanding the world from the perspective of that person and seeing how they would rationally react in those kinds of situations. Here's another one. Uh, people who, are, who used to be very um, conversant, who valued language writers or academics who develop dementia, often become very um, unable to socialise. They don't like socialising, they tend not to speak. And the reason that is, is because they feel embarrassed about it, because they know they've got language difficulties and they value their capacity, their role as being an academic, but now they can't instantiate that role so well. So they become a little bit inward. That's not a symptom of the dementia. That's just a perfectly predictable reaction from someone who's got a symptom that's you know is is not very helpful to them in their you know in their in their sense of themselves. But given that um, somebody with dementia will often be confused and distressed and and maybe even dangerous to themselves, uh, what's the alternative to being paternalistic? Well, that's. That's a very good question, um, and it opens up this big issue of the nature of care in the modern world. So I might just mention uh, the 
social psychologist Tom Kitwood, who had an enormous impression on this issue in the 80s and 90s, and who wrote a series of papers which uh, were fundamentally against this, uh, the, the type of care that up until that point um, was, is, which is sometimes known as warehousing, where we regard the person with dementia as a patient to be medically treated Somebody, there's an us and them mentality that was not in all facilities, of course, but there was this sense that this is a person who needs to be restrained, perhaps medically restrained. Um, they have to be controlled, managed, perhaps even isolated. So that sets up what uh, Kitwood called a malignant social psychology. Um, and it's very counterproductive to to the person who's in that situation who's already struggling with their own symptoms to be stigmatised and now regarded as a person with dementia. So there's sort of looping effects and that sort of self-fulfilling dimension to the, to the illness starts to kick in. So Kitwood said, no, we need to reverse this. The problem is not with the person with dementia. The problem is with us, the carers and society, to get a to get a clearer picture of what's going on with that person. Um, there's a nice acronym that gets used in care called VIPs or VIPS, which is a play on words for VIPs. And that stands for valuing the person. We have a person here who is a citizen with certain rights and entitlements. So that's the first thing. A per, a, 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 Someone with dementia is a person with rights and, and, and entitlements. The second idea, beginning with I, we have an individual. That is to say we have an individual who's got a very particular personality, who has, an, who has a history. They're not just a number in, in a hospital. So we need to understand the person in those very particular terms. Um, the idea of P is that each individual has a particular perspective. They bring that history and that individuality, that personality, um, with them. So we need to understand the world from their perspective. And the fourth um, S stands for social environment. So the idea here is that we have uh, what Kit would call an interpersonal field. And to understand a person, we need to understand them in the context of their relations with other people. And after all, we are different with our, with our, in our different relationships. Think of just your friendships, for example you're different with your different friends. So Kitwood's idea is that there's a kind of a relational self and it's it's not different for a person with dementia in a social environment, um, in, in a care environment. So we should be caring for other, the carers should be acknowledging that individuality and realising that the self is realised within that kind of relationship. Uh, and so um, the idea is quite a contrast to the warehousing idea. It's um, a, ref a real refreshing kind of way of thinking about the way, uh, about care in the modern world. Unfortunately, although it's mainstream, it's not applied in all areas. And a real problem that as you would know, and your listeners would know from the Aged Care uh, Royal Commission, is that there are serious funding shortages now and into the future, especially given that this, the problem of dementia 
is only going to get worse because of the rates of dementia. So um, food for thought, definitely. You talked about the relational aspect of someone's life, and one of the most distressing aspects of dementia for spouses and children is that sometimes their loved ones don't recognise them anymore. At that point, you will sometimes hear someone say, she's not my mum anymore. Is there a sense in which that's true, that a person is no longer the same person, or maybe in some senses is even a person at all? Okay, um, this is an important question as well, very important question because it does go to this relationship aspect of um, understanding dementia and, and treatment in dementia. The first thing I'd, I'd say is that um, just to ref reflect on uh, what we discussed earlier, there are different stages of dementia, mild, moderate and severe. And what's going on for a person at those different stages um, can be very different. Um, there's a second aspect to this. People uh, with dementia will oscillate over days, weeks, months with, with the severity of the condition. And uh, there's a phenomenon called sundowning as well, which refers to this idea that people in the morning can be quite fresh and, and reasonably on the ball, and then come sort of late afternoon, they start to deteriorate. So um, that's important in understanding um, how people self-present. They may self-present at one time in such a way that you might make an inference about how severe the illness is for them, but they won't necessarily self-present uh, in that way another day or at another time during the day. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is to distinguish between what I just said as a person's self-presentation and how they really are. If you've got, say, a moderate dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, it might be that you're like the academic I spoke of earlier who's very reluctant to speak. And that can create the impression that they're very far gone indeed, that she's not the person that she used to be. She's a different person. And again, it might just be a perfectly sensible reaction to one's symptoms. So in fact, internally, you're still the same person. You've got the same personality. You might have uh, the same sort of moral sensibilities. You don't like to be treated badly, for example. So that, is, that distinction is important, uh, understanding how people present and how, understanding how they really are. There's, a, um, there's an anthropologist, Janelle Taylor, who has a wonderful paper, who, the title of which I can't think of now, and she talks about the importance of um, caring for people even when they seem not to be able to recognise you. But in the course of describing that paper, which is quite autobiographical, she talks about her relationship with her mother she points out that Eve, there are degrees of recognition. If I can't remember, if, if her mother couldn't remember her name, she'd nevertheless say something like when, when Janelle would visit her, well, hello there, stranger. And it was clear from the body language that there was full recognition. She just couldn't think of her name. Um, so there are degrees of recognition that really count here. And there are degrees, therefore, of the sort of moral understanding of the relationship and of what's at stake insofar as this person is in, is struggling and they might be switching on and off. Um, so I think uh, that's, that's critical. I'll say one more th thing here, um, which goes to the point about um, 
the way personhood is made up of many things. I distinguish between the, the concept of a person and the concept of the self. We can have different selves, can't we? We're different selves with our different friends. I've got my angry self, my younger self, and so on. There's innumerable number of selves I can have, even though there's just one person here. Um, now, what that means is when you think about the nature of Alzheimer's dementia, which is, after all, damage to brain systems, they can affect different selves. So to give you a sort of a, a quick, very important example, I think, when you have memory loss, your, um, that, that is, we typically um, lose uh, our episodic memories, memories for things that have happened, say, five minutes ago or, or half an hour ago in um, memory loss in, in Alzheimer's dementia. So there's a kind of an episodic self that gets lost. But the self-image of that person might be perfectly intact. Psychologists call this trait self-knowledge, one's understanding of oneself, one's understanding that I'm a certain kind of person who deserves to be treated a certain way. So for someone who's um, retained their self-image with dementia, but they're struggling with their episodic self, there's still a lot of the self left. It's that, it's, I, I call it the last self-standing. One's self-image self persists, even though other selves are, are abandoning ship, as it were. And that's got real important moral aspects to it, that we shouldn't give up on a person just because their symptoms make them seem like there's a loss of self. I think that's a really important aspect to it. And sometimes we can suddenly access um, a self that we didn't know was there, that we thought had gone. Music therapy seems to be remarkable at doing that. This question dovetails very nicely with this idea of having different selves. There's a phenomenon um, which psychologists sometimes call the petrified self. Oliver Sacks has talked about this as well, quite famously. And it goes like this. Uh, people with Alzheimer's dementia may... Uh, have severe memory loss for um, short-term memory. But what can happen is their, their self-image uh, becomes unupdatable. So that you might have a person who's in their 70s or 80s, but they retain the self they had from their 40s and 50s. So we call it a petrified self. Now, um, in very... Very neat cases. Um, Sachs talks about a case called Mr. Q, who was in um, a, a dementia care ward uh, or, or a nursing home, I think he said, um, run by the Little Sisters of the Poor. And the Little Sisters of the Poor recognised that this person, we'll call him Mr. Q, that's what Sachs calls him, um, was an erstwhile janitor. And so they realised that what was his sense of himself was his sense of his role as a janitor. So what they did was to give him keys and give, and give him various implements that he could use to go around the care home and act out the role of janitor. Now, Sachs says, look, this was actually a very good thing for him. It provided a kind of organising role for his self. It effectively treating him as though he was this former self uh, held him together. Um, and now the issue is, should the Little Sisters of the Poor said to him, look, Mr. Q, actually, 
you're an elderly person with advanced Alzheimer's dementia, you're not a janitor. And Sachs says, no, this, this would be just cruel and potentially could have been very harmful to Mr Q because it would have undermined the very thing that was keeping him going as a person. You know, got this sort of concept of agency role, which is, um, becomes very important in these petrified self cases. So this goes to another very important issue in relation to dementia care, which is truth. And this comes up for a lot of people. Um, the example I gave in the introduction, which which comes up all the time, is when an elderly person is trying to uh, get in contact or believes that they will be picked up by somebody who's actually dead, often a spouse. Um, and what, how the carer should respond in that situation. Is it okay to lie? Is it okay to say, yes, your, your husband's at work when in fact, you know, her husband's been dead for many years? Right. The, these are troubling cases. Um, what I tend to do with these cases is distinguish between emergency cases and non-emergency cases. So um, the, the case that you just mentioned, I, 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 we might put into the, uh, the category of emergency cases. And I think the set of um, ethical principles that would govern what we should think about that separate out from the from the non-emergency cases. So the non-emergency cases go to fake environments having decor from the 50s, which um, is a kind of a contrivance, but it might put some make people feel at home. The other, there's another kind of case uh, where we have animated dolls or fluffy toys, which um, people with dementia. Uh, can find soothing and calming. And um, then there's a, another case again, which I'll, I'll, I'll discuss in, in a set called Simulated Presence or Simpres. I think those three cases that are, the, the, those cases um, go like this. I think the 50s decor thing, I'm not worried about at all. In, in a sense, all decor is faked because, in a sense, we have to choose some decor and why not choose that kind of decor? So I don't find that that's particularly morally deceitful. I'm more unnerved by the animated dolls cases or the animated um, uh, fluffy animals because I just imagine my own parents um, who, who are no longer with us. Nevertheless, I can imagine a, a situation where my own parents had advanced dementia and were given a fluffy toy or a, or a, or a, a bait or a doll to make it look like it was a baby. And I just find that a bit unnerving, a bit distasteful, a bit infantilizing, a bit undignified. Um, so I find those slightly more troubling. And then the third kind of case I mentioned is this uh, Simpres case, simulated presence. So just very briefly, what happens is loved ones uh, or spouses or family members of people with dementia are invited to make tapes of conversations that are then later played to the person with dementia to fake a phone call. So that the carer will will bring in an iPod or or, or a um, a contraption that makes makes it seem like a phone, and the idea is to fake an apparent phone call between the spouse or the family member who has formally engaged in this conversation. Now I find that quite troubling, just because um, it also in, uh, makes the family member engaged in the in the deception. Okay. It's a very deliberate deception and pre-planned. Pre-planned, very deliberate, and um, for some now, and of course, there's, there's a reason for this. It's meant pe people who engage the, the person with dementia finds it very soothing 
because they've got a severe memory loss and they can't recognise that this is not um, faked. They really think that they're talking to their loved one um, and this might be a case of a petrified self, so they think they're, you know, they're 20, it's from 20 years ago and, and so on. But I do find that those troubling. And the most troubling cases are the ones that you started with, the emergency cases, where we have somebody who might is banging on the door to get out of the locked ward because they have to go and pick up their husband who is coming home from work and they're late. And they've, they've figured out that, um, uh, and this is becoming very upsetting for them. Um, now, it might get to the point where, you know, it's very distressing for all eyes around. They might be shouting. It could be a real scene. They might be in danger of hurting themselves. Now, what do we do there? Um, there are a range of um, levels of deception. It might be the case that, that as a last resort, we just have to outright lie to this person. We just have to say, look, um, I've just had a phone call from your husband. He's already been picked up and he's at home so you can relax. That's just an outright lie. Um, I, my position on this is if it gets to that really emergency point, then this is the lesser of two evils. Not a good thing to be doing, uh, not a good thing to be practicing because that be can become habitual. Nevertheless, um, it turns out that in the circumstances, we're trying to avoid something worse. Um, so, but I, I think the whole area is um, pretty vexed and complicated. And um, one thing I should note is that uh, care workers who are interviewed, almost all of them say they've engaged in some deception at some point or another, e even lying. Um, it, it, what, one, th one final thing I might mention is that there was a two, uh, 2016 uh, UK Mental Health Foundation report which talked exactly about this issue. And they had a nice set of distinctions between, uh, as I remember, whole truth-telling, uh, looking for alternative meaning in what someone has said, distracting the person, going along with them, you know, Little Sisters of the Poor, Mr. Q type case. And then the fifth example would be just straight out lying. And that's important nuance in, in the levels of deception because it's not just a question of telling the truth or lying. There's lots of, there's lots of alternatives within that that seem to me, um, you know, morally different and morally appropriate for differing circumstances. And I suppose it goes to if you do it with an understanding of that person's identity and dignity and where they are. And you have to be careful because, as as we've talked about, you can think that a person doesn't have any understanding and then they can flip back into understanding and realise that you've lied to them. Precisely. Uh, it's a big problem. Um, don't forget that people with even moderate dementia – uh, they haven't lost their self. Um, they might be pretty well on the ball in all sorts of ways, except for some particular areas like memory loss and language difficulties. Um, they might be, this is a person, you know, with a lifetime of history and of um, being in social situations and reading social cues. They can see through you if you're lying to them and they will see through you if you're lying to them. So it's, it's, very, it's very troubling for care workers who are, trying to work out what to do in that in that situation and I think Julian Hughes who who uh, has talked about this quite a bit gets it right 
lying is a, is a last resort. Find other things to do before doing that. Um, in almost all cases, you don't have to outright, outright lie. And um, I think that's good for the carer because, after all, lying is a very uncomfortable thing to have to do, even when it's one of the emergency situations that I described before. So far we've talked about protecting the rights of people with dementia, but there are competing rights. There are some extreme cases where people's capacity to make moral decisions is dangerously impaired. If we know autonomous decision-making is doing harm or is likely to do harm, do we have a responsibility to take it away? Are there times when we just have to put someone in a locked ward because otherwise they're going to be dangerous? Right. Um, th this is a really troubling aspect of dementia. Um, I, I, I want to talk about um, some cases of homicide of people with dementia, but I want to preface these remarks. This is by... homicide of them or by uh, them? No, no, by them. Oh, heavens. So, so um, some people with dementia, uh, particularly um, a dementia, say uh, there's frontotemporal dementia with a behavioural variant, um, which has effects not just on memory but initially on um, uh, personality. So there can be an abrupt and radical shift in personality. Um they're not the only cases where, um, you know, people have committed crimes. And there are other cases where people become delusional and disinhibited. And that can be a pretty dangerous combination. I want to preface all of this by pointing out that the rate of murder performed by people with dementia is incredibly small. So my colleague, Jeanette Kennett, who's doing a study on this, found only, what was it, 28 cases from the last 20 years, this is in Australia, 28 cases, um, and there's about 7,000 murders um, uh, baseline or, or, or all told. So you can see that the percentage there is very, very small. So I really want to emphasise that, you know, this dangerousness point is, um, it's not a big issue. In, in terms of the sort of overall date, overall sort of response that you might make. Okay, so um, he, here's the troubling nature of this, I think. In any trial process where one is dealing with somebody with a mental illness who might be psychotic or mentally impaired, there are questions all along the way as to, as to the, their, their fitness to plead in the first instance, their culpability during the trial itself, um, the sentencing, the nature of the sentencing and the procedure for sentencing and their fitness for punishment, if I can use that, that term. In a, in a case where a person, um, say with paranoid delusion with schizophrenia, commits a homicide, that person is going to get well and so um, with, on medic with medication. And so their fitness for punishment is, is not particularly an issue. Unfortunately, with people with dementia, it's a progressive, chronic, and unfortunately fatal disease. But they are not going to get better. They are going to get worse. Um, now, where I'm going with this is that, this, that that fact makes it very difficult in the law for understanding and treating people with dementia who commit homicide. Um, 
here's what typically happens. Maybe I'll just mention a particular case that, uh, that, that Jeanette has investigated. Uh, this is the case of Robert Talbingo in the ACT. Robert Talbingo uh, had a catastrophic car accident and sustained brain damage. And this is in, um, this is quite recently. And the effect of this brain damage was, was to make, render him with a dementia. Uh, one year subsequent to, to this, he viciously and brutally murdered uh, an acquaintance by, um, with repeated blows to the head and torso using a metal, metal pole. Um, the sort of partial explanation for this was, was an acquaintance. There'd been ill will brewing for a few weeks, but then suddenly Talbingo um, exploded and he killed this person. The upshot was that um, Talbingo was unfit to go through the normal, a normal trial. But what happens in these circumstances is that there's a special hearing, and this happened with Talbingo, special hearing, and a judge um, makes uh, an, an estimate of um, what, what would have taken place in the normal trial. Talbingo was found guilty, and he was given 15 years. Um, under what's called a defining, uh, a limiting term is the expression. Now, a limiting term is a sentence that's given to a pers person with an impairment. Um, uh, and the assessment is the amount of time they would have got in a normal trial. And the purpose of that is to make sure that when they do get locked up, because after all, they've been found guilty, they won't be locked up indefinitely because this is a person with, you know, it's not the normal case. But we, of course, we, we don't want to give them, we don't want to punish them extra just because they've got dementia. Now, um, the problem with these cases is that, um, so the purposes of punishment um, can be retributive or they can be utilitarian, um, but in general, there's got to be a communicative, expressive dimension uh, dimension to the punishment. In particular, the person being punished needs to understand the nature of the punishment and the reason for their incarceration for the purposes of punishment to, to take effect. Um, now, unfortunately, there was a... For, for Talbingo, that doesn't get a grip. Uh, there was a review uh, five years after his sentence began and uh, the review was to see whether he really deserved to stay in prison. And um, as the judge reported, or sorry, as, as the um, person acting on behalf of Talbingo reported, uh, he said, Mr. Talbingo is past being capable of having an appreciation of these matters. And that in relation to him, we are dealing with a very different brain than, which, than that which was involved in the index offence. He is incapable of appreciating why he is incarcerated. Now, I did some um, some research on this. It's very unusual for a person uh, who's got a dementia, who's in that situation, to be released prior to the uh, the limiting term, even when we know they can't really understand why they're there. Now, I should say one more thing. It's tricky, isn't it? After all, Talbingo killed a person, a person who has family and friends and who's pretty upset about it. 
and would regard Talbingo as a dangerous person who needs to be punished and needs to be you know, kept away from, from um, uh, the general public. So it's complex. Uh, will we, would the, the judge who was at the, the review hearing be inclined to discount those, those sensibilities from, from, the, from the, you know, the victim and the victim's, from the victim's family? It's hard. I, I, you know, I think that has to be considered. Um, but here's the point. There's a moral point to punishment, and it's not being realised here. That, that's the difficulty. Now, um, that's one case. There are many cases like this, and um, uh, this is only going to become more of a problem because at the moment the law really doesn't have a consistent reading of what's going on in these cases. So another vexing problem for, for dementia and um, uh, something we're going to have to come to grips with. Well, fortunately, cases involving uh, people with dementia and crimes are, as you say, rare, but Alzheimer's and other dementias certainly are not. Uh, we've got nearly 10 million new cases of dementia every year around the world, and we can be certain these issues will continue to be of great interest and importance. Dr. Steve Matthews, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of the Australian Catholic University. Thanks too to Trey Karunaratna, one of our talented media production students here at ACU, for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy.